It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. This is episode 27. Uh, it's called The Witness of Whitaker Chambers. It sounds like a novel title, doesn't it? Uh, This series, if you've missed the first 26 episodes, is covering a span of time in American history, 1914 to 1974, which is a foundational time for the world in which we live now. The America that we are encountering right at this moment is greatly affected by these years. This event that I'm going to describe, it's a series of events, but it's a series of events following World War II uh, in the late 40s that is going to then create a ripple effect into the 50s, which we've already sort of touched on when we were talking about McCarthy for president. And uh, it is going to involve two key characters. One is named Whitaker Chambers, and the other is named Alger Hiss. And so if you've ever heard those names, well, then you'd have sort of an idea of where I'm going. This is an unusual message, and the angle I'm taking on it is unusual. And even the uh, chronology of when you put this in the storyline is hard because this is going to create a ripple effect into the world, the thinking, the dogmatic positions of right and left that we have today. Now, those dogmatic positions have always been there, but they're going to be defined in a whole nother degree in and through this storyline. And so it helps us sort of understand maybe even a little of our heritage, whether that be good or bad, uh, to at least understand maybe how to rightly divide and separate out things that are biblical from things that are social. So the witness of Whitaker Chambers. So I'm going to write a high school paper when I'm in uh, high school. Now I'm 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 very hesitant to even bring up this story. For those of you that have been a part of this series, you know that I am not approaching this series as a conservative, even though I have a tendency to lean conservative. I'm not not, uh, approaching it as a Republican, nor am I doing the opposite and somehow trying to see from the liberal vantage point and trying to think like a Democrat. It's that I am trying to approach this with a biblical understanding. Of course, I could just hear the conservatives saying, that's exactly what conservatism is. It's biblical. And that's where, of course, part of the problem comes is there are, yes, that's true. You could also say that with certain liberal uh, mindsets. And I could make a great case for both sides of that argument. And you would realize, okay, 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 let's let that one go. Because the biblical mind is what we want. If God when he says something sounds a bit bleeding heart liberal, that's his business because that's God. If at certain times he sounds very conservative, that's because the conservative element has taken certain aspects and the liberal liberal element has taken certain aspects. And what we want to do as a church is not follow a political trajectory. We want to be believers. We want to be Christians. And if that need, means we need to have a little more bleeding heart, we should have a more bleeding heart. If that means we should be more stayed and true to the truth and build our life upon that and not you know, get a little mushy-brained, as the conservatives would usually accuse the liberals of being, then that's what we want to be, right? And so though I lean conservative in so many aspects of my life, I want to give this series in just a biblical way, where it doesn't necessarily show my hand one way or the other. I just want to say this is what the truth is. 
And it's been a pleasant process, I have to admit. This one's hard, okay, because this one is going to be, this, this entire message is going to show a sharp divide between the conservative and the liberal. And you're going to see just a little of my background, too, in this, which is, makes it a little more dicey, but that's part of the fun. I like dicey, I think. So my high school paper was, this is, it was a persuasive essay, you know, one of those types. Uh, and it was, its theme was, Ronald Reagan is the greatest American president. All right, does that show a little something right there? I mean, oh, classic Reaganite right there. Uh, but this is heavily influenced by my dad, okay? So, you know, I'm sitting there with my dad, and my dad would help me with my papers. And I liked Ronald Reagan, but my dad was convinced that Ronald Reagan was the greatest, so he convinced me. He was doing his persuasive paper on me, and then, of course, I was convinced. My teacher did not like it, by the way. My teacher really uh, hated my paper. Uh, so there's Ronald Reagan, and so I, I'm going to be in my, uh, you know, just coming into my teen years as Ronald Reagan is coming into his prime, and so it's, it's just that part of my key development period. I still like Ronald Reagan a lot. They, you know, when I study the story of, of Ronald Reagan, there's certain things that I just laugh out loud. I mean, he's a really funny guy, and there's other things that I sort of wince, and I'm like, eesh, but... That's the same with almost any political leader that I've ever looked deeper into, like Winston Churchill. I love Winston Churchill. And, you know, I'm not a brandy drinking, cigar smoking sort of guy. And yet I really like Winston Churchill. And so there's aspects of some of these men that you could say, I really like that. And there's other ones, you know, that I could pass over. So who or what most influenced Ronald Reagan? It was a book. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is because there is a book that's gonna be published in 1952 about the storyline that I am sharing right now. And that book is going to change our culture in a very huge way. It's sort of like an Uncle Tom's Cabin uh, sort of book. And yet it's a book that probably many of you have never heard of. And it's a book that is going to change Ronald Reagan's life. And there is the cover. I, I know it doesn't look like much of a book. Uh, it's called Witness by Whitaker Chambers. So that'll, that'll make a little more sense as we progress. I know no, none of you are going to, if you judge that book by its cover, probably are going to read it, right? That, that doesn't look very exciting. Actually, I'm sort of intrigued by it. So here's a book description of Witness. Now, it's interesting because I've known this story. I've been studying this story for probably around seven or eight months, okay, from different angles and hearing about it in different, a lot of different perspectives on this story, a lot, okay? It's, it's, very, it's a very interesting story, especially when you realize how combative it is and how many people, uh, you know, how many people love Whitaker Chambers and how many people hate Whitaker Chambers, how many people love Alger Hiss and how many people hate Alger Hiss. I mean, this is a highly uh, provocative storyline that is going to split the country in half, Every time I've ever studied this, I've never read the book Witness. And once I read this, I read this like yesterday, uh, this, this book description, which then sort of startled me because I never thought about the fact that, that Whitaker Chambers wrote this and what he meant by witness was different than what I thought he meant by witness. He was a key witness for the government, for the FBI, against a communist spy in our, gov in our government, our State Department named Alger Hiss. And so I've always presumed that this book was about that. He was a witness. When in actuality, his life had been changed by Jesus Christ, which is why he left the Communist Party. He was a spy. 
And then he is going to witness, that's the, his entire testimony is that the reason he's going to come forward and the reason he's going to be willing to testify is because he wants to stand for truth in a generation of lies. And I, I've never thought about that. So just listen to this description. The moving autobiography and reflective meditation of a communist spy who became a Christian and to the scorn of the intellectual establishment witnessed to God's grace. Strangely, I have never heard that in all the study I've had of the storyline. And so I haven't even thought of reading the book because I thought, well, it's just going to tell me what I already know about the story. He's just, it's just an autobiography of his take on, this, on the, uh, the trial. Well, I, I think it's a little more than that. So the dramatic impact of a witness. Just the word witness is very interesting because it's one of those words that's going to be used in the New Testament heavily. And so we're going to see that there are witnesses unto the soul. For instance, the word witness translates to martyria. That's what it is in the Koine Greek, martyria. Does that sound familiar? Martyr. And so a martyr is a witness. They are a testimony of something that they have seen. And they are going to testify in a strange sense with their very life. And the fact that they are willing to die and acknowledge, acknowledging what they say and never changing their storyline is going to have a huge impact on Christian history. So the dramatic impact of a witness, it's a piece of evidence in the midst of this bombastic natural realm of something otherly. When you're a witness for Christ, there's so much noise, there's so many lies, and then suddenly there's this other uh, statement. There's something other about you. And I like the term otherly. The term holy comes, is, it's one of the definitions you could have for holy is otherly. It's not like this world. And that's what we are supposed to be. We're supposed to be like the Holy Spirit. It's a holy spirit. It's not like the spirit of this world. It's other than this world. And that's the spirit that we bear. Christian history says it this way. The blood of the witnesses, but it doesn't say it that way. It says the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So how has the church grown? Well, according to Christian history, this statement has gone down through the ages. It's because of those that were willing to stand up boldly and represent truth unbendingly, unflinchingly. They were willing to even die, be fed to wild beasts, hang on crosses and gibbets. They were willing to actually declare even if it cost them their life. So the great trial, Whitaker Chambers versus Alger Hiss. So Whitaker Chambers, in his book, Witness, which I know I've said I haven't read. I've read pieces, okay, because I've gotten quotations. I've actually never gotten the book and gone through it. I'm extremely intrigued to do that now. It's tough being in the middle of a series where I don't have a lot of extra time to read a book. It's like an 832-page book, right? It's not just the casual reading on the side. But in the beginning, he's going to write a letter to his children. And I'm going to take just a portion of that out. Beloved children. Much more than Alger Hiss or Whitaker Chambers was on trial in the trials of Alger Hiss. Two faiths were on trial. Human societies, like human beings, live by faith and die when faith dies. At issue in the Hiss case was this question whether this sick society, which we call Western civilization, could in its extremity still cast up a man whose faith in it was so great that he would voluntarily abandon those things which men hold good, including life, to defend it. At issue was the question whether this man's faith could prevail against a man whose equal faith it was that this society is sick beyond saving and that mercy itself pleads for its swift extinction and replacement by another. 
At issue was the question whether in the desperately divided society there was still remained the will to recognize the issues in time to offset the immense rally of public power to distort and pervert the facts. At heart, the great case was this critical conflict of faiths. That is why it was a great case, your father. So there is more to that letter to his children. That's just a little uh, takeout portion. But it's going to talk about two different faiths, and I've been fascinated pondering that. Two faiths on trial. Faiths regarding the sick society known as Western civilization. It's interesting because right now we have a very similar trial. Because most of us would say our society is sick. They said the same thing back in the late 1940s. The society is sick. Now, what's funny is when you look back at the late 1940s, you see a very healthy, robust society compared to ours today. However, they saw it just like we see our society today as sick. And so there's two ways of looking at that. This sick society that we would be willing to lay down our life and defend its origin points, defend what made it great in the first place before it became sick, remember when it was healthy, that we believe so strongly in it that we would lay down our life to preserve the great nation of America. That's one faith. The other one is, oh, this poor nation is so sick that it needs to be put down. Have you ever heard about a dog being put down because of mercy? And we don't want it to suffer, so we're gonna put it down and replace it with another. That's actually how Whitaker Chambers is going to express how the communists are looking at it. And I think it's a very generous way of saying it, right? That they are going to actually have mercy on our country to say, let's replace it with something better because this nation is past resuscitation. So faith number one, it's worth saving. Now, I happen to fall into this category, okay, just so you know. you know. I know maybe I'm wearing something on my sleeve. I am not communist at all, right? So it's pretty easy for me maybe to say that publicly and not feel like I'm skewing something. But our sick society is worth saving. I will give up even my life to defend and preserve it. So that's the position Whitaker Chambers is coming into. He says there's two faiths on trial. The second one, faith number two, it must be replaced. Our society is sick beyond saving, and mercy itself pleads for its swift extinction and replacement by another. Now, that's a very generous way of describing the communist uh, agenda, but I think it's always good to give the more generous interpretation of things because it helps us not dehumanize those that stand against us or stand opposed to us. To always remember that they are human and that they have human faculty, they have human reasoning, and in the midst of that human reasoning, though they be deluded and deceived, they are still making decisions that they think are best. And I've had to, make, I've had to come to that generous conclusion many times when, it, when I have, have a tendency to stick on my political glasses because you can get riled up very quickly and feel like there's truly a conspiracy against Jesus Christ himself. And so you want to defend this because that is a lie. November 27th, 1954. So now this is skipping forward in our storyline, and I'm sort of gonna give away the end of the story first, which I know is not the best way to tell a story, but in this case, I'm doing it. Alger Hiss, remember he's part of our storyline, he's part of the great case. Uh, he's the actual one that's gonna be accused of being a communist spy. Alger Hiss was released from Lewisburg Federal Prison on good behavior after serving three years and eight months on the charge of perjury under oath. So he's a communist spy, but he's not going to serve uh, in prison as a communist spy. Usually they would be executed, by the way. The Rosenbergs were executed for being communist spies. 
And yet he can't be tried as a communist spy. That's part of the story. So there is a picture of Alger Hiss testifying. And December 2nd, 1954, I don't know if you notice the difference in dates. This is like just a couple days after, right? December 2nd, 1954, the U.S. Senate voted to censure Senate Joseph McCarthy by a vote of 67 to 22. So this is a watershed point. There's been a, a battle. McCarthyism has risen and exploded, and we've had the Red Scare in our country. And so after all of that, you sort of see the dust settle and you see McCarthy quieted. You see Alger Hiss publicly humiliated and he goes through prison. And now we have sort of this ongoing war of liberal versus conservative of if that was walked through, the, the, the liberals are going to say, you falsely accused Alger Hiss and McCarthyism is of the devil. And that's, you know, republicanism. And of course, the conservatives are going to say there really is a problem with communism in this country. And though we might not totally aside with McCarthy's methods, we still know that there's a problem. Yes, Alger Hiss was a spy. You know, so you have this and that's going to be a dividing point ideologically. So there's Joseph McCarthy, who we talked about in our previous message. Lionel Trillin is going to say this, and it's, I've been trying to digest this quote. In the United States at this time, prior to the Alger Hiss case, Liberalism is not only the dominant, but even the sole intellectual tradition in the realm of political thought. So at this time, in the realm of intellectuals, there was only one option for how you conclude politically, and that is liberalism. It's New Deal liberalism. And if you have a brain, that's how you think. If you're one of those uh, you know, old school conservatives, you are not a thinking man or a thinking woman. The, in the intellectual society, there was only one option. After this case, there is going to be a split where the intellectuals are going to go in two different directions. And the intellectuals are, you know, half the intellectuals are going to sort of wake up and say, you know what? Actually, Whitaker Chambers is saying something that I agree with. And we really do have a problem in this country. And so that's going to be the watershed point for it. Ronald Reagan says it this way. Chambers sparked the counter-revolution of the intellectuals, and Chambers' story represents a generation's disenchantment with statism and its return to eternal values and fundamental values. So statism meaning the state controls everything, the, the growth of the state. And that's what FDR with his New Deal is going to do. It's going to make the state huge, bigger, 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 bigger. And suddenly the intellectuals are going to say, actually, our original founding purpose of this country was to minimize that. And so here's, of course, this is the classic debate even under this day. And it's going to start right here. This is the rise of something we could look at as Reagan. Uh, Ronald Reagan, what, did you know that he was a New Deal liberal? Democrat, that's who he was. And what's funny is because in memory, we're going to look at him as the archetype of conservatism. Douglas Linder says it this way, the confrontation between Chambers and Hiss contributed to a polarization of the political left and political right. Chambers saw the world as a battlefield between godless communists and Christian anti-communists. Now, I want you to see if you can read this in light of the world in which we're in today, because this is identical of the way that it's, it can be described. We just don't use the term communist always. We would say godlessness or atheism, that which is opposed to God. So Chambers saw the world as a battlefield between godless communists and Christian anti-communists. A battle between darkness and light, 
Liberals largely rejected that division, seeing it as arrogant and overly simplistic. Listen to this line. Where you stood determined what you saw. Does that sound like modern day uh, thinking or what? Have you ever felt like when you, when you hear someone from the opposite vantage point, you're just like, what are they saying? It's like total lunacy. I mean, that doesn't even make sense with your worldview. With your perspective, that doesn't make sense, but, but your perspective doesn't make sense to them either, which is creating an impasse of communication which is one of my burdens for the generation in which we live, is it doesn't do me any good if the people I'm trying to reach cannot hear me. And every time I talk, I sound like something from a Charlie Brown Christmas special. Wah, 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 wah. I'm not interested in just making noise. I'm interested in actually conveying truth, which is part of the challenge that is created when these rifts take place in our society. So how did this one event, which I haven't even really gone into the event yet, but how did this one event change America? This one event, this trial is going to create and spark the rise of Joseph McCarthy. And so Joseph McCarthy is going to go on his rampage to, you know, to scour the country for uh, communists because of this. It brought Richard Nixon into the limelight. There's just so many things that are going to affect our, our world right here. It moved the nation decidedly right or conservative. It brought Eisenhower into the presidency. We had Roosevelt for four terms. Then he died at the end of World War II. We're going to have Truman for the end of his last term and then a whole other term. So we've been in the FDR New Deal system for a long time. This one case is going to change all of that. It split our nation ideologically. The modern conservative movement was born. Ronald Reagan switched from being a New Deal liberal Democrat to become, well, Ronald Reagan. The characters in the story. Whitaker Chambers. So this guy is a confessed traitor, that he was a traitor to his country, that he took state secrets and passed them off to the communists. I mean, what, that's quite a thing to admit to. But he's turned to an informant for the FBI. And then he's turned into a witness for the government. The uh, House uh, Un-American Un Activities Committee is going to utilize him as a witness. And then he's turned into the hero of the intellectual conservatives. That's quite a journey to go on, to go from being a communist to being the hero of the intellectual conservatives. I cannot think of a greater uh, chasm to cross than that one. So there's a picture of Whitaker Chambers. He was sort of known, if you ever hear a description of him, and I've heard a lot of him, he's just sort of a frumpy, dowdy, sort of dopey looking man. Like everyone's like, oh, I, I, I would not have any confidence in the words that this guy would speak, right? And then you're going to contrast him with a guy named Alger Hiss, a well-respected national figure, a man who fought tirelessly for peace and goodwill, the nice guy, the smart guy, the handsome guy, who was suddenly accused of the unthinkable by the conservatives. And therefore, he's the hero of the liberals. So it's interesting, the hero of the conservatives is the enemy of the liberals, and the hero of the liberals is the enemy of the conservatives. And you can just sort of see it in this story. Uh, and you know, here's Alger Hiss, very nice guy. I have to admit, I, I really like this guy, and I want to like. I actually want him to be innocent. I really do because he's a well-spoken, well-dressed, well-mannered guy in every regard. It's like, yeah, I like that guy. When you look at the two just in front of you, you actually want Alger Hiss to be the one that is telling the truth. It, Whitaker Chambers doesn't look 
very impressive. It's very similar to the way the kingdom of heaven works. The truth oftentimes isn't attractive to our natural man. If you look at Esau and Jacob, you have a first and a second. The first, Esau, is like the hunter, the hairy hunter. Now, I'm not sure you know, how hairy helps, but you know, when you're a guy, you know, the word hairy at least makes you esteem him a little. Because you know, the other guy who's just sort of has no hair, you know, Jacob, that's, that doesn't seem very manly, right? And what does it say? You know, but he's a plain man dwelling in tents. That's what it says about Jacob. Hairy hunter, plain man dwelling in tents. Which one are you going to go for, right? I, I've oftentimes said to the women, like, which one do you want to marry? And then the famous question back from the women, uh, how hairy? (laughs) But the point being, our natural man esteems the first. Our natural man esteems Alger Hiss in this storyline. And the frumpy, dowdy, disheveled uh, Whitaker Chambers doesn't necessarily, isn't necessarily attractive to us. And so we're vulnerable to falling for the Hiss line in this story. So I'm going to go into the court case. This is going to be sort of fun for you guys. There's like four different stages to this court case. It's a huge thing. Uh, I don't even know how many of you are old enough to remember the O.J. Simpson trials, but that was like on uh, you know, TV. That's similar to this. This is the first court case ever televised. And so Whitaker Chambers versus Alger Hiss, round one. Chambers, I'm just giving quotes, moments uh, in, the, in, the, in the thing. Chambers is going to say, before I left the party, speaking to the Communist Party, I begged him, speaking of Alger Hiss, to join me. You see, these two are close friends. He cried, speaking of Hiss, Hiss cried when we separated, but he refused to break his ties with the party. I was very fond of Mr. Hiss. Hiss says, I do not know Mr. Chambers, and so far as I am aware, have never laid eyes on him. There is no basis for the statements about me made to your committee. I am not and never have been a member of the Communist Party. All right, so now we have one guy who is straight-laced, who's very high up in the government, Alger Hiss, and he's saying, this guy's just a liar, bald-faced liar. I don't even know who he is. And so most of the country is going to say, shut up, Whitaker Chambers. We don't know who you are either. Everyone likes Alger Hiss, right? He's part of the establishment. He's wealthy. He's smart. He's well-dressed. He's handsome. Who's this other guy? What does he have to say? President Truman weighs in and says, this entire thing about Hiss is a red herring. It's just a distraction. Leave it. Drop it. No more issue. And that doesn't mean, I don't want to mislead you to think that President Truman was trying to sponsor a cover-up for uh, communist activity in the government, even though there are decisions he's going to make to not remove known communists, lest the conservatives get the edge because it exposes that he has a problem with communism in the government. So he, is, he did do that, but, and I don't know in this situation how I can give a comment, but President Truman was against uh, communism in our country. But one congressman senses there may be more to the story. So even though Truman is saying, hey, leave it alone, drop it for the sake of our country, there's one congressman who is going to have an extra interest in this, and it's going to be the case that will make him famous. He is going to become the vice president to a president named Dwight Eisenhower. So this is going to be the moment when Richard Nixon steps onto the stage of American history. Remember this series goes from World War I to Watergate? And I said, this is the formative season. For those of you that don't know what Watergate is, 
you can trust me when I say this, it has a lot to do with Richard Nixon. So Richard Nixon steps into the storyline right here. And so there's a young Richard Nixon, uh, very good communicator, very wily uh, character. So what is known at this point in time, and it's pretty obvious, one man is lying, but who? So the nation is just sort of leaning in. I mean, this is classic material, fodder for fascination. First, the two men are interviewed separately. So I'm just going to give you some key moments that are going to actually be very important. So Nixon asked Chambers, and this is in the HUAC uh, committee, the uh, House Un-American Activities uh, Committee that is investigating this. Nixon says, did Alger Hiss have any hobbies? So he's trying to establish that Chambers knows this man. So prove that you know him. Answer these questions about him. And so this is the answer that Chambers gave. Yes, he did. They both, Alger and Priscilla Hiss, had the same hobby, amateur ornithologists, bird observers. They used to get up early in the morning and go to Glen Echo, out to the canal to observe birds. I recall once they saw, to their great excitement, I don't know how to say this, but a prothonotory, prothonotory warbler. Boy, that's a hard word to say. Obviously, I've never discovered one of those, right? So this is in the private interview with the HUAC committee and chambers, right? So now we're going to switch, and it's now a private meeting with Hiss and this committee. And Nixon says, showing Hiss two photographs of chambers. So he's going to lay out photographs of chambers. Remember, Hiss has said he doesn't know who this guy is. This man, Whitaker Chambers, has testified that he spent a week at your house. Do you recognize him? Hiss, I do not recognize him from that picture. I want to hear the man's voice. Then after a short recess, he comes back after recess uh, in a courtroom that isn't going out and playing on the swing set, by the way. That's a break. It's possible that it is a man that I knew in the mid-30s as George Crossley. You can almost see him going out and talking with his uh, counsel, and they're like, if you keep saying you don't know this man, all it takes is one other witness that says you did know him and you're in trouble. Uh, so he's going to come in and say, I may have known him, but he's going to say under a different name, George Crossley. Nixon says, what hobby, if any, do you have, Mr. Hiss? So do you see how Nixon is setting him up? And Hiss says, tennis and amateur ornithology. And then Nixon says, acting as if he too were a student of ornithology. Oh, sort of like he loves ornithology too. He's going to say, did you ever see a prothena... Oh boy, there it is again. A prothenodotary warbler. And Hiss says, I, I have, right here on the Potomac. Do you know that place? And boom, the, the committee's looking at each other going, Chambers actually knows him. And so Hiss doesn't know it. He fell into this trap of Nixon's. Second, the two men are interviewed together. Nixon, pointing to Whitaker Chambers, says, I ask you now if you have ever known that man before. Hiss to Whitaker Chambers. So the, Hiss is speaking to Whitaker Chambers here. He says, are you George Crossley? Chambers says, not to my knowledge. You are Alger Hiss, I believe. Hiss says to the committee, this is possibly the man I knew as George Crossley. And Hiss, after asking Chambers a series of questions, so he sort of interviews Chambers himself, and then says, I am now perfectly prepared to identify this man as George Crossley. Now it's on television. So we're, I mean, this is like different stages of the development. I'm just giving you little pieces. I know some of you are like, I need to go back into history and go through this whole thing. It's so fascinating. 
So Chambers uh, is going to speak of Alger Hiss. Alger Hiss was devoted and at the time a rather romantic communist. He now represents the concealed enemy against which we are all fighting and I am fighting. Hiss is going to say this to the committee. You should be ashamed for using the great powers and prestige of the United States Congress to help sworn traitors. Remember, he's got, Chambers is a sworn traitor. To help sworn traitors besmirch any American they may pick upon. Chambers, in another moment, is going to say, Hiss was a communist and may now be. Ooh. So, Hiss has a reputation to uphold. So to uphold that reputation, he is going to file a slander suit against Whitaker Chambers for calling him a communist publicly. And so now we have a slander suit uh, and Whitaker Chambers, it's tough when all you, your entire relationship was undercover and secret. How do you prove that you had a secret friendship uh, to the world? And so that's what leads to the perjury case. I'm sorry, the slander suit. Here's how Hiss's attorney is going to start. He's going to make this very strong arm statement to Whitaker Chambers, and he's going to say, I challenge you to produce any correspondence, either typewritten or in handwriting form, from any member of the Hiss family. Sort of like, you have nothing, because Hiss knows that in the communist spy circles, when you get the information, you're going to transcribe it, you're going to destroy it, you're going to remove all evidence. The last thing you want is a lingering trail of your communist spying. And so produce something. And he knows that Whitaker Chambers wouldn't have anything if he was a good communist spy. What if he wasn't a good communist spy? So Douglas Linder says this, shortly after that request, Chambers visited the Baltimore home of his nephew's mother. I was thinking about that relationship, his nephew's mother, isn't that his aunt? Why wouldn't it just say his aunt, but maybe his nephew had a new mom. I, I, it was just such a funny statement. Uh, Chambers visited the Baltimore home of his nephew's mother, where he said he reached into a dumbwaiter shaft in the bathroom and pulled out a large weathered envelope. The envelope contained four notes handwritten by Alger Hiss, 65 typewritten documents, copies of State Department documents, all dated between January and April 1938. That's going to be important. January and April 1938 in five strips of 35 millimeter film. The documents of genuine were strong evidence not only that Hiss knew Chambers long after mid-1936 when Hiss claimed to have last seen Crossley, but also that Hiss engaged in espionage. So some of you are thinking the same thing everyone else is. If he's had this the whole time, why didn't he show it? Nixon asks, why didn't you produce this evidence before? Chambers, listen to this answer. This is very intriguing to me. I wanted to spare an old friend from more trouble than necessary. It's obvious now that Hiss is determined to destroy me and, if my, wi and my wife if possible. So disclosing these documents seems the better course. Douglas Linder adds to that, there was still one more big shoe to drop. Chambers placed the film, two strips developed and three undeveloped, taken from Baltimore home, his, the Baltimore home into a hollowed out pumpkin, then placed the pumpkin back in a pumpkin patch on his Maryland farm. On the evening of December 2nd, 1948, Chambers accompanied two HUAC investigators to his farm, then led him to the patch holding the hollowed out pumpkin. The film would prove later to include photographs of State and Navy Department documents. Over the ensuing months of the Hiss Chambers controversy, the press, enjoying the alliteration, would generally refer to the entire set of documents and photographs taken from Baltimore as the Pumpkin Papers. 
So there's Nixon looking at the microfilm. Isn't that uh, a great shot? Douglas Linder says this, the pumpkin papers changed everything. The question of whether Hiss knew Chambers better than he admitted or even whether he was a communist now seemed relatively inconsequential. The question now was whether Alger Hiss, high State Department official, was a Soviet agent. So, okay, it's obvious that Chambers and Hiss knew each other. So it's obvious that Hiss has been lying. But is Hiss a spy? Douglas Linder says, fortunately for Hiss, the statute of limitations for espionage was five years. And the incriminating evidence all concerned documents passed over a decade earlier. The statute of limitations was not an issue, however, on the question of whether Alger Hiss committed perjury. So they can't try Alger Hiss as a communist spy. Isn't that an interesting thought in our country? We have a guy who's fairly obviously a communist spy, but you can't try him because this was over 10 years ago and the statute of limitations was only five years for spying. I'm not exactly sure why that is the case, but he did lie in court. And so they're gonna now try him for perjury. The perjury trial. So there's uh, Alger Hiss and his brother entering into the courtroom for the perjury trial. Hiss's attorney is going to state this in his opening statements. This trial will show the contrast between my client, Alger Hiss, a man without a blot or blemish, and that of Whitaker Chambers, a voluntary conspirator against the land that I love and you love. Chambers, uh, when, when asked where he received these typewritten and handwritten documents, is going to say, I, I received these from Alger Hiss in his Washington home. Douglas Linder says this, the defense, through its witnesses, tried to persuade jurors of three things. So Alger Hiss's defense team has three goals. First, that Hiss's reputation was so good as to make his alleged espionage activity almost unthinkable. Second, that Chambers was mentally unstable and should not be believed. And third, that Hiss's Woodstock typewriter had been given to a household employee sometime before 1938. Remember when those documents that were typed were? They were January to April 1938, but that typewriter that they were typed on was given away before then, making it impossible for either Alger or Priscilla Hiss to have typed the Baltimore documents. You see, there was something about an old-timey typewriter that's different than what we have with a computer and a printer today, is typewriters have very distinct marks and very distinct ways that they, uh, they put their ink on the, on the paper. So you can discern that came from this typewriter, sort of like a handwriting analysis. Yeah, that didn't come from this typewriter, this did. And they know that this came from Hiss's old typewriter. But so the argument is, well, the Hisses gave that typewriter away in late 1937. So if these papers were from 1938, they must be forgeries. They must be someone who took the typewriter trying to try and frame Alger Hiss. And that's what the defense attorneys are saying. Uh, it'd be fascinating to take a poll in here if you guys were the jury. Of course, I think I've already swayed you on certain fronts, uh, but also your political persuasions might affect you too. It's interesting how we, we do this. I remember the O.J. Simpson trial, that if you were white, you had a tendency to think O.J. Simpson was guilty, and if you were black, you had a tendency to think he was innocent. Isn't that fascinating? I mean, it's just the orientation with which you approach something has a tendency to bias your conclusion. Perry Catlett, who was uh, a friend of the Hisses 
and who is going to be the family that is going to receive this typewriter. It sounds funny to give a typewriter. I can't imagine ever giving someone a typewriter, but that was a big deal in this, and it sounded totally normal back then. So the, Perry Catlett was given this typewriter, and Perry is going to say, the typewriter was broke. The keys would jam up on you. I believe we received it as a gift in December 1937. Oh, that's a strategic date to receive it. Think about when the papers were, were typed, January through April of 1938. And it's going to say it didn't work, right, even then. And then we took it to a repair shop at K Street just off Connecticut Avenue. Okay, well, that sounds like a pretty good story. Listen to what the prosecuting attorney is going to say. This is a great moment, guys. This is a movie moment. Supposing I tell you that the Woodstock repair shop at Connecticut and K did not come into existence until September of 1938. <laughs> That's good. That's good. This prosecuting attorney, by the way, is very impressive, as you will soon see. Okay, so the first perjury trial is going to end with a hung jury. And they cannot agree. Some people think uh, Hiss is innocent. Some people think he's guilty. They can't agree. And so it's going to go to a second perjury trial. Douglas Linder says this, the months between the end of the first Hiss trial and the start of the second had been eventful. The Soviet Union had exploded an atomic bomb. The Red Army of Mao Zedong had succeeded in driving the forces of Chiang Kai-shek to the island of Formosa. The NATO treaty had been approved, and perhaps most ominously for Alger Hiss, polls showed public attitudes shifting towards harsher treatment of U.S. communists. So this is the Red Scare is starting to increase, and poor Alger is an accused communist spy. And his first perjury trial, he made it through, but now the temper, the attitude, even of jurors that are going to be coming on are decidedly uh, going the opposite direction. There's now a concern that this is real, that this work of communism is actually endangering us as a nation. So the defense is going to bring in their ringer, their key man, and it's a psychiatrist named Dr. Carl A. Binger. And Carl A. Binger is going to testify to the uh, instability of Whitaker Chambers. He's done an analysis on Whitaker Chambers, and he is going to testify to that fact. And he's going to say, based on my reading of Whitaker Chambers' writing and my observations of his trial testimony, this man is a psychopathic personality and a pathological liar. So now we have sort of an awkward moment. I mean, now we have a professional witness at a very high level saying Whitaker Chambers is a liar. And I mean, that's a pretty good case. Now, the prosecuting attorney is going to stand up and he's going to ask Dr. Binger a few questions. Prosecuting attorney. This, by the way, this is my favorite part of this whole message. You said Mr. Chambers has a psychopathic personality. That seems to me to be a useless and empty catch-all of a lot of symptoms. You say that Mr. Chambers demonstrates a psychopathic personality because he often looks up at the ceiling while in the witness chair. Should we then conclude that you yourself have a psychopathic personality, seeing that my assistant has noted that you looked up at the ceiling no less than 50 times in the hour you were on the stand delivering testimony? You also say that Mr. Chambers demonstrates a psychopathic personality by the fact that he exhibits untidiness and lack of concern about his appearance. Should we then conclude that Albert Einstein, Bing Crosby, and Thomas Edison were all psychopaths? For it is well known to all that they too showed a general untidiness and lack of concern about their appearance. One of the other key points of proof of Mr. Chambers' psychopathic personality is what you term his many equivocations 
in and throughout his testimony. An equivocation is when you creatively don't answer the question, you cover it over with something else. Uh, what conclusion should one draw then about your own client, Mr. Alger Hiss, who in and throughout his 550 pages of testimony has precisely 158 equivocations? Should we term Mr. Hiss a psychopath right along with Mr. Chambers? Oh, and one final thing. You said that the fact that Mr. Chambers hid the microfilm in a pumpkin demonstrated his psychopathic personality. Should we then conclude, Dr. Binger, that the mother of Moses was demonstrated the behavior of a psychopath when she hid her little child in the bulrushes? <laughs> I mean, you want to just stand up and cheer. It's like, that was good. That was really good. The sentencing of Alger Hiss. Poor guy, he lost uh, this one. But instead of being tried as a communist spy, he is going to be convicted of uh, perjury. And he's going to receive five years in federal prison. He's going to get off in three for good behavior. So here he is being led to the trial. You see the person sitting next to him, which I don't know if that's his wife. Uh, she's obviously not too excited about a picture being taken on the way to prison. There are those that still hold to Hiss's innocence, still to this day. They still, I mean, this is a key issue of belief, of ideology. Hiss never, even unto his dying day, never said that he was a communist spy. Now, we have, and I will show this, we have evidence today which demonstrates, not just on Whitaker Chambers' uh, testimony, but evidence outside of that conclusively making it clear that Hiss was a communist spy. However, throughout this time, we didn't have that evidence. All we had is Whitaker Chambers' testimony. And so you had to make a judgment in that time period based on two men's statements. One man saying he's a communist spy, one man saying, I'm not a communist spy, I don't even know who this man is. Oh, oh, he's George Crossley, I knew him back in 1933. You know, that type of a thing where it's just like, one man, Whitaker Chambers, looks like he's a villain trying to just tear down someone in the establishment, someone who's a part of the New Deal democratic system some kind of Republican conspiracy. You can just sort of see that, how it creates a, an ideological rift just over this issue. So there are those that still hold to his innocence. When a lie is essential to sustain a belief system, it's difficult to acknowledge it as a lie. And you're gonna see this at any point in time throughout history. You start dealing with uh, evolution, and you start dealing with scientific data, and you'll notice that certain scientists will actually even acknowledge, even if that was true, or even if what I believed was a lie, I'd still hold to it. I mean, it's very fascinating because their entire body of work and knowledge is based upon it. And so if your entire ideology, if your entire political view, if your entire uh, voting record throughout your life has hinged on a, a certain idea, which is actually false, it becomes increasingly more and more difficult to acknowledge it as false. Matthew 27, 62 through 66. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he, speaking of Jesus, was still alive, how that deceiver, they call Jesus the deceiver, isn't that funny? Uh, how that deceiver said, after three days I will rise. Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead, so that the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go your way, make it secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, stealing, sealing the stone and setting the guard. And you guys know what happens, right? Boom, doesn't matter if it's sealed. It's busting open. 
Jesus rises from the dead, just as he said. So how are they going to handle that? Because now we've got a problem, guys. It's interesting because these Pharisees, these chief priests, their entire goal was to wait for the Messiah. The Messiah comes and they reject him. But now that they've rejected him and they're basing everything on a lie, and even though the guards are going to come to him and tell him what happened, they don't want anyone to know it. Talk about reinforcing a lie. Why don't they actually accept the fact that he is the son of God? Instead, they reinforce their lie with more lies. After beholding the miracle, some of the guards, some of the guard came into the city and reported the chief priests all the things that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them, his disciples came at night and stole him away while he slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed, and this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day, that he was stolen. And so these lies can perpetrate not just for a generation, but for centuries and centuries and centuries. And it is fascinating to recognize, it's like, how do we know different? I mean, if this conspiracy was brought, this conspiracy of lies and deception was brought about in the very beginning, how come we, 2,000 years ago, know the truth? Isn't that just a fascinating statement? The witness of the apostles, that's one of the reasons. We are going to have those that are going to testify of seeing Jesus not just die on the cross, but rise from the dead. And their testimony, they will never defy it, never deny it, and they will die painful deaths even because of it. But they will never recant. Not one of them will. Listen to in Thessalonica, it says in Acts 17, 6, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. They were turning the world upside down. Even with these lies standing against them, those that stood as witness, those that were bold with their life and even risked their public reputation, Whitaker Chambers is going to have a much more difficult life because he chose to testify. If he had just kept his mouth shut, you know, he was an informant, and then by the way, I asked him to testify. It's like, oh, the agony of his soul to actually go public with any of this. He actually loved Alger Hiss. He was privately appealing to Alger Hiss to give up this, this ruse, this lie. Why? Whitaker Chambers had an encounter with the living God. Ironically, Whitaker Chambers, just like Alger Hiss, both grew up in Quaker homes. Isn't that weird? And both of them, disillusioned in the church, are going to choose communism. And yet one of them is going to persist in communism and a communist ideology until he dies, thinking that silence and never betraying what actually happened is the way that he is going to secure the future of communism in this nation. The other one is willing to walk away from it, take public scorn for it, be accused of being a traitor, but to say, I am no longer that man. And I want to stand for the truth moving forward. So why do we know even today the fact that Jesus Christ was innocent on that cross. And that that empty tomb is actually a bona fide empty tomb because of the power of God. How do we know that? It's because the Holy Spirit is a testifier of the truth. And he is a witness unto us, even to our understanding all these years later. We weren't at the cross, but we know about the cross. And we know in vivid detail the truthfulness of what Jesus Christ did. And we stand in awe, even though we're 2,000 years later. We stand in awe and we stare at an empty tomb, even though we've never been there. We never saw it. But we feel like we have. We know that Jesus sits enthroned on high, even though we, with our own natural eyes, have never beheld it. In a strange sense, we have seen it. We have seen it by faith. 
And that is a working of the witness of the Holy Spirit. That witness is what changes lives. The witness of the Venona Papers. So even years after Whitaker Chambers is going to pass away, you're going to see this testimony that's going to come out. The Venona Cables are the intercepts of the communist communications to their spy operation here in the United States. And we are going to decode them. The NSA and the CIA are going to have a system. They're going to decode them, but they're never going to release those papers lest the Soviets realize we have the data. So they are going to hide this, and it's going to be released in 1995. And they expose Alger Hiss as secret agent Ailes. And just as Whitaker Chambers said, he's a communist spy at work in the United States State Department. Whitaker Chambers was telling the truth. And Alger Hiss was lying. Herbert Romerstein, in his book, The Venona Secrets, he's like one of the chief, if not the chief expert on the Venona cables, So the release of the Venona documents beginning in 1995 afforded historians the opportunity to see at last the unvarnished truth about Soviet espionage in the United States. The Venona papers render key facts indisputable. To take just one example, we now know for certain that Whitaker Chambers told American authorities at the time, which at the time was so controversial, what he told at the time that was so controversial was true. Ronald Reagan is going to award Whitaker Chambers the Presidential Medal of Freedom in March 26th of 1984. This is a man who has been spurned, who's been accused of being a liar. This is even before the Venona cables. We're going to have a communist spy that over in in Russia that is actually going to testify that Alger Hiss was known as Ailes. This is before the Venona papers even are going to come out. And so then you're going to add that to the Venona cables, actually see the Venona cables referring to him as Ailes. And it's like, that was true, and you're going to have multiple corroborating facts that are going to make it very clear. Ronald Reagan said this, Whitaker Chambers, at a critical time in history, stood alone against the brooding terrors of our age. He was the focus of a momentous controversy in American history that symbolized our century's epic struggle between freedom and totalitarianism, in which his solitary figure personified the mystery of human redemption in the face of evil and suffering. This is a amazing statement. He's going to personify the mystery of human redemption. He was a communist spy. And now he's going to turn into a hero of his nation. He was betraying his nation. Now he's going to rescue his nation. Isn't that just, it is an incredible thought to think of, he's a symbol of the mystery of human redemption. Whitaker Chambers said this, this is in his book, Witness. Then there came a moment so personal, so singular and final, that I've attempted to relate it to only one other human being, a priest, and had thought to reveal it to my children only at the end of my life. And here he is revealing it here. This is happening in 1939. This is what's going to change his life. One day as I came down the stairs in the Mount Royal Terrace house, the question of the impossible return to life without communism struck me with sudden sharpness. See, it's impossible. Once you're a communist, you can't go back you have to follow it through. It's sort of like we said, once you have been embedded in lies to expose those lies even to yourself, the consequences are too grave. And he is going to, uh, the question of the impossible return to the life without communism struck me with sudden sharpness. As I stepped down into the dark hall, I found myself stopped by a hush of my whole being. In this organic hush, a voice said with perfect distinctness, if you will fight for freedom, all will be well with you. What was, what, was there was, what, that, that's a funny statement, what was there was? Uh, 
what there was was an awareness of God as an envelopment, holding me in silent assurance and untroubled peace. By the way, to start as a communist, you have to reject God. That's the very first step into communism. And so when you've spent this whole season betraying your country, rejecting God, it's a big moment to question that. It's a big moment to be at the bottom of the stairs in the dark and recognize the consequences of what if you say there is a God? What if you acknowledge that God? What if you allow that God to be true? How will that affect you? And that's what he's dealing with in 1939, which is going to lead to him leaving the Communist Party and going to the FBI. Whitaker Chambers said this, the crux of this matter is the question whether God exists. If God exists, a man cannot be a communist. Did you hear that? If God exists, a man cannot be a communist, which begins with the rejection of God. But if God does not exist, it follows that communism or some suitable variant of it is right. So does God exist or not? That's the key question. Because if he exists, you can't be a communist. But if he doesn't exist, then we need to have a variance of something other than this because this is based on Judeo-Christianity. Our system of government actually includes the notion that there is a God. We must reject that if there is no God. Let's not live in a fable territory. Let's live in reality. It makes sense. And that's what he's saying. But what if there's a God? Because he's actually thinking there is a God. And if there's a God, then communism is the arch nemesis of everything that we hold dear here. The witness of the body of Christ. So you are a witness. Did you guys know that? And in the most simple sense, do you know what question we are answering when the world encounters us? God exists. That's the testimony that we have. I know we say a lot more than that, but in the most general sense, in this battle right here, what Whitaker Chambers is going to do, he's going to awaken so many that are sleeping in a stupor that are saying they're passive to the issues of communism coming into our country. And he's going to stand up and say, guys, Either God exists or he doesn't. If he exists, then we must fight to preserve our society. If he doesn't, hey, then I guess it's okay that we lose it all. But what if he does? And Ronald Reagan is going to wake up because of Whitaker Chambers' witness. Isn't that interesting? It's just to see the ripple effect. We are going to wake up in a supernatural way because of the witness of the scriptures, the witness of the Holy Spirit in the scriptures, and then the witness of even the body of Christ around us. If you were to trail and, and follow the path of how you were awakened, you're going to recognize it was a Whitaker Chambers in your life that once was lost but then was found. And then they're going to stand for truth. And they're going to represent truth to you and you're going to see it and change. Father, Make us bold as witness. Witnesses to share your life with a lost and dying world. Lord, I pray that you would encounter our soul afresh and that you would remind us of how significant it is to stand for what is right, for what is true. This world is desperately craving someone who will simply speak that which is true. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you so much for the witness that you have given to us in our lives. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we ask this. Amen.
Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.